Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Today, we are doing a movie that scared the fucking shit out of me when I was in elementary school, or maybe seventh grade. I was about to say, what grade were we in when this came out? 2002? Well, in 2002, technically, we were in the second grade or the end of the first grade. We're here with The Ring from 2002. Yeah, and I was saying this to somebody earlier. This movie can only be as effective as it was in the time that it was released. I still think it's fucking scary. (laughs) Ah! But I think that this movie launched movies like When a Stranger Calls, right? Where it's Mm -hmm. like, you don't know who's calling, but like, we don't live in a world where that (laughs) shit's anonymous anymore. You know what I mean? And like, Mm -hmm. all of the information about anything ever is at our fingertips. But in 2002, like, yeah, you were going to libraries and looking up newspaper articles and all of these (laughs) like types of things. And like, weird videos weren't as the norm as they are on TikTok these days. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So like, I think it broke society for a little bit when it came out (laughs) that watching it back now obviously feels a little bit corny, at least to me, maybe not to you. Not to me. Okay. (laughs) Well, let's get into our ladies because we have a lot. So we start with our leading lady, Naomi Watts, and she's playing Rachel. Naomi Watts is a British actress. She starred in 2001's Mulholland Drive, which opened her career to international fame. And that movie was actually requested for us once. It's a big movie, yeah. It's a big movie. It's kind of more like psychological thriller, but I think that could be something you might see in the future, depending. She was nominated for Best Actress in 2003's 21 Grams, and then again in 2012's The Impossible. And recently, she was in 2022's Goodnight Mommy and Netflix's The Watcher, which is a series. And she's one of those actresses that has a whole separate wiki page for her parts because she's been in so many things. You know who else is in The Watcher? Who? Our leading lady in It Follows, I'm pretty sure, is in The Watcher as well. I'm pretty sure she's on the cover art for it. Wait, is she the daughter? She might be. (gasps) Oh my god, I watched it. Did you watch The Watcher? I watched like the first episode and couldn't really get into it, mm. but I recognize seeing, I think her name's Micah Monroe. I recognize mm-hmm. seeing her face in it at least. Do you know who else is also in The Watcher? I'm pretty fucking sure. You know, Megan, the neighbor that gets murdered, who has the dog? She's like the annoying neighbor and she has oh, a dog. Oh, in Megan the movie. In Megan the movie, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's in that movie, and guess what? She's also a neighbor who's kind of frustrating. I'm pretty sure we're really... Sometimes we stop and fact check. I'm just going to throw this out there and think that I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have Davy Chase as Samara Morgan. She's an American actress. Her breakout role is being cast as Samantha Darko in 2001's Donnie Darko. And she's the fucking voice of Lilo in the Lilo and Stitch movies in addition to reappearing in later films in the Ring franchise. Did you know that she was the voice of Lilo? No, I think I knew she was in Donnie Darko, but not the second bit. No. That is so freaking funny. Next, we have Shannon Cochran as Anna Morgan. She's an American actress. She's had some minor TV roles in addition to reappearing in later films in the Ring franchise. Then we have Lindsay Frost as Ruth. She is a former American actress. She has retired. She had a variety of TV and film roles in addition to a Broadway credit, which is kind of cool. Then we have Amber Tamblin as Katie. She's an American actress and author. Of course, a variety of TV and film roles. My favorite credit being Tibby Rollins from 2005's The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I still have never seen that. 
are you fucking real? You're Tibby. I'm Tibby. <laughs> You're Tibby. She's like the emo girl. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, you're fucking welcome. But also, love that that movie came up because America Ferrera was just in the Barbie movie. And of course, Blake Lively is always in the mainstream. And I always think about them being in the sisterhood of the traveling pants together. Blake Lively was in that movie? Um, Yeah. I can't think of Blake Lively after A Simple Favor. I mean, obviously, she was in fucking Gossip Girl and all that kind of shit. She was also in Bend It Like Beckham. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But like after A Simple Favor, I was like, I saw everything I needed to see from Blake Lively. (laughs) Not in a bad way. In a like, that's what her association is for me forever. I've never seen it. Is it good? Should we cover that for this podcast? (laughs) I mean, it certainly is more psychological thriller, but it's her and Anna Kendrick Blake Lively is just wearing these power suits and gives off sapphic energy the entire Mm, time. So mm. like, sure. Excellent. excellent. Anytime. I'll watch that anytime you ask. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Next, we have Rachel Bella as Becca. She's an American actress, some film and TV credits, including Betty Paris in the 1996 version of The Crucible. You thought we were done with it. No. And can I just say, I knew she looked familiar (laughs) because I'm a teacher and I watch The Crucible from 1996 six times a year. (laughs) And finally, we have Polly Perrette as Beth. A very minor role in this movie, but she is really well known for her role as Abby on NCIS. Yeah, we clocked her right away. I was like, um, excuse me, Abby? (laughs) What are you doing here? And I haven't seen NCIS in like 10 years. I mean, her character is just so memorable and I included her on here. So there are our ladies, lots of ladies. Getting into the pre-plot trivia, The Ring 2002 is directed by Gore Verbinski, written by Aaron Kruger, Koji Suzuki, and Hiroshi Takahashi, and took from the uncredited 1998 screenplay for Ringu, a Japanese film that inspired The Ring. So 1998's Ringu was based on Koji Suzuki's novel of the same name from 1991. And that novel was the first in what ended up being the Ring trilogy. The other books were Spiral, released in 1995, and Loop in 1998. But yeah, I'm really excited to do a J-horror movie because that is honestly its own subset, like American remakes of Japanese horror films. Like you have The Grudge, you have Shudder. There's like so many that are out there. And I think this is the first till we're dipping into that territory. So this is exciting. For the choice of the film's coloring, it was decided that everything was to be tinged with the color green to give the film a sickly, unnatural feeling. Sets were also lit in a way that none of the characters have a shadow to create an almost subconscious sense of creepiness. It certainly succeeded in that. Yeah, Shay and I watched this film together and she was just like, it's so blue. (laughs) (laughs) And until Stephen King's It released in 2017, this movie was the highest grossing horror remake in history with a total worldwide gross of over US $249 million. I said this before, I'll say it again. I technically saw this movie. This is, I think, one of the last movies, with the exception of The Apostle that we mentioned on a recent episode, that I saw before this podcast. And this was one of the first scary movies I ever saw. It scared the shit out of me. I watched it with my cousins and my dad. And honestly, maybe I can't even say I saw it because I hid behind my dad the whole time and I just heard it like a podcast. (laughs) Like you're hearing this podcast. (laughs) So revisiting it was kind of cool. Ready to get into it? I'm ready. 
So we open with an exterior of a suburban house. It's raining outside because of course it is. And there's two girls watching TV at a sleepover. This is Katie and Becca. One ends up telling the other about this videotape that kills you after you watch it. After you watch it, you get this phone call that tells you you're going to die in seven days. And you can tell this is Becca just trying to freak Katie out. But Katie says that she watched the video with her boyfriend Josh last weekend and thought it was just a sick joke, but it happened a week ago tonight. All of a sudden, she begins gagging. She seems like she's not breathing very well. Becca is very concerned, but Katie's playing a prank on her. Very much punked. (laughs) So they go downstairs after they hear a phone call. And of course, this is a phone that's plugged into the wall, so they have to go all the way downstairs to answer it. Becca answers it for her friend Katie, even though she's at Katie's house. Turns out it's Katie's mom. We have another tiny fake out scare. So after hanging up, Becca goes upstairs, but Katie remains downstairs to, I don't know what she's doing, maybe to get a snack. And the TV turns on in the living room. It's just static. She thinks that Becca has taken the remote and is now playing a trick on her. She yells at Becca to quit it, turns off the TV, but then immediately after returning the remote to the coffee table, the TV turns back on. So I'm sorry, but I don't think Becca did it. (laughs) I don't think Becca did it. So then Katie goes over to the TV and unplugs it. She goes back to the kitchen. The fridge is open, which is unusual. She shuts it, calls up to Becca to see where she is, but there's no answer. We're getting this mounting sense of tension. So she makes it upstairs and is about to re-enter her room, but she sees that the door is shut and there is water coming out from underneath her bedroom door. So she cautiously reaches towards the doorknob, opens it, and her TV in her bedroom is on, and it's just a black and white image of a well. Then suddenly we get a camera POV shot advancing quickly toward a terrified Katie, and the scene cuts and ends. We cut to a kid drawing with black crayon in a classroom. This is rivaling Dalton and Insidious for how much (laughs) black crayon this kid is using in his drawings. His name is Aiden, and he is sitting with his teacher waiting for his mom to come pick him up. We meet her very shortly after that by a woman screaming on the phone as she marches down the hall. You can tell she has some sort of high energy job. She's like, get my deadline here, la la la. And then she comes into the classroom to pick Aiden up. Aiden goes to wait in the car as his teacher takes Rachel to the side to talk about Aiden's coping or lack of coping with his cousin Katie's death. So his teacher shows her all the creepy kid drawings that Aiden has been doing that depict Katie dead underground in stick figure. They're disturbing. Rachel brushes off the concerns and doubles down that the drawings are just Aiden's ways of working it out. His cousin died three days ago. Give him a break. And his teacher's like, okay, but Aiden drew these pictures of Katie last week. So that night, mom tucks Aiden into bed, but he begins this really morbid conversation about them not having enough time, essentially saying they don't have enough time to live before dying. And Rachel tries to settle his concerns, but through her conversation with Aiden, she learns that Katie knew that she was going to die. She had apparently told Aiden this. We get the sense that Katie babysat him a lot. That's a puzzling conversation. They say goodnight. But Aiden doesn't say goodnight, mom. He says goodnight, Rachel. He calls her Rachel the entire damn time. He's a little businessman. (laughs) 
<laughs> get him a suit and tie. Well, he gets himself a oh, suit and tie. Oh, my fucking... Yeah, he fucking Well, next morning... <laughs> he doesn't need you to get him a suit and tie. Because he's going to get you your suit and tie. <laughs> because the next morning, Rachel gets up and is trying to dress herself for Katie's funeral to go out into the living room and see that Aiden is tying his own tie in the mirror, standing on a step stool, and he has laid her clothes out for her while dressing himself for the occasion. So, like, why is there an 80-year-old man (laughs) in this six-year-old's body? I don't know. I don't know. So they arrive at Katie's funeral wake at the house that we had seen earlier in the movie in the cold open. Rachel goes in and comforts her sister, Ruthie, who was Katie's mother. Throughout the scene, we hear some whispers from people here and there about why is Katie having a closed coffin funeral if she died of a stroke? But also, how could she have died of a stroke? She is so young. She's only 16, 17. In her conversation with Ruthie, Rachel asks, what happened? Ruthie says that nobody seems to have a good definitive answer for how it's possible for a 16-year-old girl's heart to just stop. And she begs Rachel to investigate because Rachel is a journalist. And she says, please, I saw her face. And then we cut to a very scary scene of Katie in the closet, hunched up against the corner with her jaw almost like unnaturally open as if her jaw is unhinged from screaming. She has like this very gray, dark look on her face as if she almost like screamed herself to death out of fear. This is the origin story of one of my biggest fear tropes in horror, which is like a quick flash of a disturbing sight. Mm -hmm. This one right there. (laughs) But this time I got through it and I faced my fears. Thanks, guys. So Rachel decides to get down to business right away. She goes out to smoke a cigarette and approaches Katie's friends. And while making nice with them, she finds out that Becca is in the mental hospital. So Becca, her friend that was with her that night, there is a jump scare from Adam Brody. (laughs) I forgot he was in this movie. (laughs) For two seconds. Literally, he's there for two (laughs) seconds just to deliver two lines of dialogue where he pretty much said, Katie didn't die because of fear. She died because there's a tape. And Rachel's like, well, what about her boyfriend, Josh? And they tell her, Josh is dead. He killed himself the night that Katie died. Weird. So meanwhile, Aiden is doing some creepy kid acting and going upstairs (laughs) into Katie's room where he sees some sort of presence. He's staring at the TV set, but Rachel comes in and interrupts him, sends him out of the room. So Rachel creeps around to see a bunch of Katie's belongings, and there is a bunch of faces scribbled out in her magazines. They could look like they're scribbled out. They could also look like they're the back of a head of somebody with long black hair, which might come up later. Definitely will come up later. She also finds a receipt for a photo processing store. So Katie had submitted some photos to be developed, and she had not picked them up yet. So that is going to be Rachel's first stop the next day. She goes and gets the photos developed, and upon glancing through the photos, she sees that several of them show the faces of the subjects as blurred out and distorted, which is really strange. After more investigating as to who Katie was with on her trip, who Josh is, she realizes that the other two friends that were with them at the cabin also died on the same night. All four teens died at 10 p.m., So she decides that she's going to go check out this cabin that they all stayed at. And she notices this nondescript tape on the shelf of VHSs in the lobby. And she snags it and then goes to take a look at cabin 12. 
So she ends up watching the tape. And there's a lot of Maj Podge images that happen one after the other. So she sees a ring lit in like a bluish white light against a black background. She sees static, rushing water, boats, a woman brushing her hair in the mirror, somebody watching her from a window, maggots, fingers in a box, a tree on fire, a chair spinning, a woman jumping into the ocean, a ladder standing then falling, the well, and more static. There might be some more images in there. You got got a lot of them. I think I got a lot of them. There's some horses in there too. horses. But Rachel is bewildered. But then her phone rings. And when she picks up the phone, a voice on the other line says, seven days. Can you give us your best scary seven days impression? Seven days. (laughs) So she hangs up and is like, what was that? I don't really know. But she takes the tape with her and heads back home. But this is where we start getting Thursday, day one, lower (laughs) thirds, whenever things are happening. So we're like, oh, shit, we're starting to count down now. I know. I kind of love it. I do appreciate like the steady onset of the tea. Do you know what I mean? Because we're about to get some tea. It's that Rachel goes home, she's moping around a little bit, but she calls some guy to come over to her apartment and take a look at the tape. Before that, I wrote, Aiden goes off to school horrifyingly independent while Rachel stays in bed lamenting over the tape. Oh my god, actually, this was crazy. Like, they live in a city, like a full city. Seattle. They live in Seattle, yeah. He takes himself down the elevator of their apartment building, goes onto the street with a little umbrella, and then is walking to what we can assume, what we can hope to be a bus stop with a trusted bus driver? But what if this little boy is about to take the subway to school? He's gotta be seven. The child is four feet tall, max. Oh, and then he brushes this guy by on the street who turns out to be the guy that Rachel called to come assist her. This is Nathan Riggs from Grey's Anatomy. But in this case, his name is Noah. Noah, and he's a cutie. And there's definitely some kind of tension between him and Rachel. But most of that tension, at least this time, is the fact that Noah does not believe for a second whatever the fuck Rachel's trying to tell him. She gives them the whole lowdown about this tape. People are talking about this tape. All four teens that watched this tape a week ago died at the same time on the same night. The whole thing that is creating this very shady picture. He insists on seeing the tape. So she shows him. She actually had already made a copy of it. But he is not impressed. He says, very student film. (laughs) Okay, so we get a sense that this guy is a little bit of a film snob. But sure enough, after he's done watching the copy of the tape, the phone rings. But Rachel makes the decision to ignore the call. She tries to get Noah to help her figure out who made the tape and where. So he agrees. So we get the sense that he has some kind of film background that he might be able to take this tape and figure out where it came from, what's going on. He takes it with him, skeptical, but agrees to help. And then she deletes a message that is left on her answering machine. So the next day is Friday, day two. Noah is studying the copy of the tape, but essentially concludes that the tape does not have a signature like most VHSs have, where you can trace it back to its origin. He said a tape not having a signature is like a human being being born without fingerprints. He can't figure out where it came from. They try to scrub through the tape and end up 
breaking it. And this is where we're crashed by Noah's new lady friend, Beth, who comes in and kills the very flirty vibe going on between Noah and Rachel. Mm-hmm. Rachel leaves. Noah chases her out and they argue about old habits, about how they always fall in and out of these old habits. It's just making it clear that they have history with each other. And as Rachel leaves the apartment complex, she sees the ladder from the tape in the alley outside of his apartment, but then just brushes past it. It is now the next day, Saturday, day three. Rachel decides that she's going to go talk to Becca at the mental hospital she's at. And at first in her interview with Becca, Rachel can't even get her to respond. She finally says, how did she die? I need to know, referring to Katie. And Becca responds, and you will. She'll show you four days. So somehow Becca, I guess being a witness to something that went down, is able to look at Rachel and know that she has watched the tape and that she has this amount of days left. So Rachel then meets with some VCR expert (laughs) that shows her how to make photos of the videotape. So she's scrubbing through the videotape, trying to take images of it so that she can study them more. Because back then you couldn't just take a screenshot. Certainly not. (laughs) She's able to scrub the video in a way where she's able to see an image that she hasn't seen before. And that image is of a lighthouse. So there is a familiar shot where there is a woman jumping into a body of water and there's always like a fly on the lens. But this time when she goes and touches the screen, she takes the fly out of the screen. Rachel gets a nosebleed, takes her photos and leaves. And the next day is Sunday, day four. There is a library montage where she is looking up lighthouses. She magically finds a lighthouse <laughs> she's looking for in 30 seconds of research. These are my favorite <laughs> things about horror movies the same angle the same picture of yes (laughs) absolutely it's just like the 30 second research montage and she deduces that it is mosco island is the lighthouse that she's looking for she finds some information on it and finds a horrifically photoshopped photo of (laughs) so bad (laughs) it's so bad (laughs) of the woman from the video combing her hair in front of the lighthouse and her name is anna morgan After some more research, she finds out that she was a horse breeder who committed suicide after having a shit ton of hallucinations, and she was taken under the care of Eola County Psychiatric Facility. But as she's doing this research, she finds herself crossing out Anna Morgan's face as she reads. So, okay, the tape is influencing her in Uh some fucking weird way. Meanwhile, Noah catches a glimpse of himself at a convenience store through the store security video being projected on the monitor overhead and sees that his face is blurred, just like it was for the pictures of the four teens, for the picture that he took of Rachel at her apartment the day he saw the video. And this is enough to convince him that maybe he needs to have more conversations with Rachel about what's going on. So Rachel calls Katie's mom to tell her a little bit more about what she's experiencing. And she ends up coughing up a string with an electrode on the other side of it. So something that you would attach to somebody's temple if you were doing some sort of brain study. Electroshock therapy. Yeah. She goes to check on Aiden, and instead, this is our first image of Samara sitting in a chair, and the floor around her is all wet. Samara ends up grabbing Rachel's arm, which gives her a vision of Samara in the testing facility with electrodes hooked up to her, looking exactly like the one that she coughed up. This wakes her from a nightmare, so she never had the phone call, maybe, maybe not. She goes to check on Aiden to find Aiden watching the tape. 
We have an emotional scene where Rachel is screaming at Aiden, why, baby, why? And of course, he's confused. He says, I couldn't sleep. And all I could think of was the scary movie spoof with Anna Faris screaming and slapping her spoof son. (laughs) Because this moment, it is a little bit confusing. I could see why Aiden would be very confused about why his mother was yelling at him for watching a VHS. But we know that he is now infected with this VHS virus. And of course, the phone rings. Rachel picks it up, starts screaming through the receiver, but it's Noah there to tell her that he believes her because he saw his own face now and all these pictures he had developed. And Rachel informs him that he watched the tape. Noah says, who did? And Rachel responds, our son. Dun, dun, dun. The tea. Okay, so they are the parents of this boy, but Noah's out of the picture. And I don't even know if Aiden knows that that's his dad, at least at this point. Well, we get a scene with them in the next scene where Aiden is in the car with Noah and Noah's like, do you know who I am? And he's like, you take my pictures while I'm out of the yard at school. And I'm like, bro, what? What? (laughs) And he's like, well, do you wish I was around more? And he's like, no, do you want to be around more? So like, it seems like Aiden's very okay with Noah's absence. And Noah's like, well, I just never thought I'd be a good father. So I took myself out of the equation because I didn't want to disappoint you. They're sitting outside in the driveway of Katie's house while Rachel looks through Katie's yearbooks for clues. She finds more black scribble rings, faces being crossed out. This gives her enough motivation to inform Noah about Anna, and they decide to split up. Noah is going to go to the mental institution to get more info on Anna while she was a patient there, while Rachel goes to the island with the lighthouse to visit and where she lived to see if she can find out more information that way. On the ferry over to the island, Rachel sees a horse in like a horse transportation trailer. And she tries, I wrote, she tries to pet the horse like an idiot. (laughs) Because that's not your horse. Leave the horse alone. And the horse starts to freak out. It starts violently trying to bust open the metal doors of the carrier, and it succeeds. Next thing you know, we have a ferry full of people trying to figure out how to manage this horse that is now on the loose. And despite efforts to subdue the horse, the horse jumps into the water and is then cut to pieces by the boat's propeller. We see like a very eerie trail of red following the ferry. And that is an image from the video. So Rachel is recognizing this image. And she also notices a handprint on her arm where Samara had grabbed her. Mm -hmm. So things are becoming very, very real. Meanwhile, Noah breaks into the records room of the mental institution as Rachel makes her way to Morgan Ranch where Anna worked. She notices that the window from the video is the same window that she's seeing in front of her right now. There's a lot of parallels. She walks about the property and finds Mr. Morgan He anticipates what she's asking for, saying, you want to know about the horses. He invites her in and tells her that most of the horses broke through the fences, ran to the water to drown themselves so he doesn't breed them anymore. Rachel notices that the mirror on the wall is the same mirror that the woman is seen combing her hair in in the video. So again, so many parallels. Mr. Morgan wants to know what she's actually doing there. So Rachel tells him about the tape. She thinks it's a message from Anna. Mr. Morgan is very concerned by this, asks where she found the tape, if there's any more out there, but he's overall disinterested and starts walking her to the door. Rachel, just wanting the information, is like, well, what about your daughter? And Mr. Morgan's like, I don't have one, leave this alone, and kicks her out. 
So as Rachel stares at the house while she's leaving, she notices that the shape of the house is very similar to a drawing that Aiden drew earlier. Aiden's still being impacted by this, so she's in a rush at this point. Yeah. Meanwhile, Noah successfully finds Anna's file and sees that it looks like she had many miscarriages. And as he's looking at this information, he gets a nosebleed. Then later he finds some negatives from a tape and sees a former counselor's phone number on file. Back at home, Rachel reaches Aiden. He is furiously drawing dark rings with his crayons. And Rachel talks to him about the house in the picture. And Aiden reveals that the girl, Samara, is showing him things. She lives in a dark place. Yes, she doesn't like it in the barn. The horses keep her up at night. She lives in a dark place now. So at this point, Rachel and Noah must have made contact about some of the intel that they've gathered because Rachel arrives at the doctor whose number was on file and asks about the Morgan's daughter to try to get some answers as to who this young woman was, especially if Anna Morgan was on file with having so many miscarriages. Like, who could this daughter be? It seems like she's hard to track down. Lots of HIPAA violations happening. Yeah, definitely. And the counselor gives some backstory. Apparently, Anna and her husband adopted a baby because they had so much trouble conceiving. The baby's name was Samara. And after she was adopted, Anna started having visions and she started blaming them on Samara. The therapist or doctor doesn't know what happened after the girl was sent away. So apparently she was sent off the island, more inland for some kind of medical, psychological attention. But she does note, since the girl's been gone, things have gotten better. The crop started growing. People started screeing less. So it is showing that Samara's presence was maybe a bit insidious. Noah goes to watch the tape referenced in the file, but the file is missing. So this tape that shows more about Samara's treatment and his treatment is missing. Rachel decides to do a B&E, a breaking and entering. <laughs> in Mr. Morgan's house to look for it or look for him. So she goes searching through this box that she finds and she finds electrodes, Samara's birth records, some creepy crawly things, and the video that Noah was looking for. She ends up watching it and it's surveillance footage of Samara and interviews with her that were taken within an institution. They ask her why she doesn't sleep and how she made the pictures. And she says, I don't make them. I see them and then they just are. Can I see my mommy? I love my mommy. And they're like, "We listen, we know you don't want to hurt anyone. And Samara says, but I do. And I'm sorry. It won't stop. Daddy's going to leave me here. Daddy loves the horses. He wants me to go away. But he doesn't know. As she's trailing off in that sentence, the tape stops and Mr. Morgan hits Rachel over the head and takes the TV away. When Rachel comes to, she sees that Mr. Morgan is working on unplugging the TV and all the electronics and taking them upstairs with him. She follows him upstairs and sees that he plugs everything in in the bathroom, setting things down on a counter. But meanwhile, the tub has been running and overflowing on the floor. And before Rachel can convince him to come out of the bathroom, Mr. Morgan turns on the devices and electrocutes himself, killing himself in the tub. And right before he says, Samara always whispered in his ear, showed him things. She's never going to stop. She never sleeps. So again, insidious presence. Noah, I guess, caught a fairy and comes to comfort her just in time in the house. And Rachel remembers what Aiden said about Samara not liking the barn. 
So they break into the barn and they see a very tall ladder, very reminiscent of the video. So tall. It's like kind of comically tall. It's too tall. Oh, and then the best part is Rachel goes up to see what's at the top of the ladder, this rickety, rickety old thing. And wouldn't you know, Noah is right behind her also on this rickety, rickety thing. Who's securing the ladder? Who is it, Noah? It's not you because you don't know your job right now. No, you need to secure it at the bottom because that shit would be flying out immediately. But in this death-defying stunt, both of them (laughs) end up in this attic space in this barn and they find what looks to be like a little girl's room. There's a TV, a bed, a chair, a rocking horse, a carousel that's currently spinning. Yeah, tell me about the brand of batteries you use. Mm -mm, I want (laughs) to know. Rachel says that Mr. Morgan blamed Samara for Anna going crazy, so he kept her in the barn alone. They see some torn wallpaper, and they end up ripping it back to reveal burns on the wall. And as they tear it off, it reveals a tree pattern burned into the wood, which again is an image that's shown in the video. Rachel's like, I know this tree. It's from the inn, the inn where she found the VHS. So they go back to cabin 12. Fun fact, this tree featured in the film and also at the campsite is a Japanese maple. And the fruit that the tree produces is known as Samara. Oh. It's kind of like an interesting, like, tree produces fruit. Samara is the daughter of this couple. Oh, that's really cool. They get back to the cabin. They're looking around. They're not necessarily finding any clues. Rachel says it's too late for her, but Noah has time to save Aiden. Noah throws a fucking tantrum (laughs) and is like throwing shit all around. And something that he knocks over is this decorative vase of marbles. Everyone needs it. Get your decorative vase. It ends up being very pivotal because (laughs) as the marbles fall onto the ground, they end up pooling in a dip in the wood in the floor. Noah's like, there must be something there. So he axes it up to reveal the well from the video. They uncover the well. They realize they can't see to the bottom. They can't even hear how far down it goes after they drop a rock in there. And as they investigate, we see some Final Destination shit where water starts seeping out from under the TV and begins causing shit to move around in the room. Nails are pulling themselves out of the ground. The lights are flickering on and off. There's some disassembling fuckery. (laughs) And this commotion causes the rest of the floor to collapse. And the TV that is sitting on one of those mobile TV stands with wheels on it hits Rachel and knocks her into the well, which I know has been spoofed to fucking death (laughs) in the scary movie movies. (laughs) And she is now at the bottom of the well as Noah is yelling for her. But somehow she survives and is alive at the bottom of the well. She yells for Noah to go get help. And as Noah steps away to do just that, we see the cover on top of the well start to close again. And suddenly, Rachel is alone in a darkened well. Suddenly, in the water, she finds a bunch of hair and is grabbed on the arm by a little girl's hand, which is Samara. And she gives Rachel a vision. In this vision, we are back on land, pre-cabins. We are simply in a grassy meadow with a well. 
we see Samara's mother approach her, fake loving sympathy, and then promptly shove her into the well and close her in with the cover. And as Samara looks up in this POV flashback, she sees the ring of light seeping in from the closed well cover, which is that iconic image from the video and also the cover art of this movie. It's giving Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV. <laughs> That's the ring. <laughs> Suddenly, after this image, Samara's body, not at all decomposed, floats to the surface and Rachel holds her body in her arm. Then Samara's body decomposes in rapid time, just as Noah calls down and confirms that it is past sunset and Rachel has survived past the seven days and she is alive. Just then, paramedics arrive. Noah is now talking to Rachel, who has made it back to the surface somehow. They're talking about they can bury the little girl next week. But of course, Rachel is still shaken. And in this conversation, Noah wonders aloud how long Samara could have survived down in that well, because she did indeed, just like Rachel, not die in that initial fall. And Rachel says seven days. And that's where we get our iconic seven days number. They get home, Aiden's asleep on the ground, Noah carries him to the car, and Aiden sleepily smiles as he sees his parents holding hands in the front seat of the car, which must be very nice for him. Aiden wakes the next morning to Rachel cuddling him. Aiden asks what happened to the girl, is she still in the dark place? And Rachel's like, no, we set her free. And Aiden grows very concerned and says, you helped her? Why did you do that? You weren't supposed to help her. Don't you understand, Rachel? She never sleeps. And Aiden gets a nosebleed, and he's showing a hand mark on his arm. Oh, fuck. Cut to Noah in his workshop. His TV turns on and starts static. He turns it off. It turns back on. And then his phone rings. The image of the well goes on the screen. He doesn't answer the call, but instead is fixated on the screen as Samara climbs out of the well on screen, walks toward the camera, and starts climbing through the screen of the television. Rachel fast and furiouses through traffic, trying to get to his place, trying to get him to pick up the phone. But Samara climbs out of the TV as Noah staggers backwards uselessly. He is knocking shit over, just trying to get away from Samara. But she ends up glitching forward. The same fearful expression rushes over Noah that rushed over Katie from the beginning. So Rachel rushes up to Noah's studio, surveys the scene, sees that static is still on the TV. She sees blood on the floor and sees Noah sitting in a chair. She spins him around and screams at what she sees. Of course, she is distraught over her survival and not Noah's survival, but it is through this experience that she realizes it wasn't saving Samara's body from the well that saved her life. It was making that copy of the tape and then showing it to her son or her son stumbling upon it by accident. The movie closes on Rachel making the decision to make another copy of the tape and for Aiden to show it to somebody else. And that's the movie. And that's the movie. Okay, so I have some post-plot stuff, of course. So like we already established, this version of The Ring is a remake of a Japanese horror novel turned movie called Ringu, which I think is probably Japanese for The Ring. I have a little bit of compare and contrast for the stories just because there are some differences, but there are a lot of similarities as well. So the stories are much the same. 
They focus on an investigative journalist enlisting the help of her ex-husband to look into the puzzling deaths of some high school students, the catalyst for interest being when her own niece passes away in the chaos. The reporter ends up watching the tape and then, of course, realizes she's on a seven-day timer to solve what's going on. In Ringu, the ex-husband is a college professor, which is a different career than Noah, and in both movies, the son of the couple watches the tape, which also increases the growing tension. However, Maisie Flowers writes in her Screen Rant article, quote, Ringu focuses much more heavily on hauntings, unraveling a multi-layered mystery and psychic phenomena. In the Japanese film, the journalist Asukawa, the Rachel character, and her ex-husband Takayama, the Noah character, discover a hidden message on the videotape as they rewatch it, searching for clues, frolic in the brine, goblins be thine. They eventually find out this message is in a dialect from Izuoshima Island, and when the two travel out to the island, that's when they learn about the history of Shizuku Yamamura, which is the Anna Morgan character, a local woman known for her psychic powers, and a doctor ESP researcher, Dr. Hayakuru Ikuma. So I think that's interesting that in the original, the Anna Morgan character is instead of a horse breeder gone mad, she's somebody just inherently known for her psychic abilities. So Maisie Flowers continues kind of exploring the more complex elements of the original plot. So as Takayama and Asukawa travel out to stay at the island, they find an inn run by who would be Anna Morgan's brother. Takayama confronts Takashi, telling him that he has psychic powers of his own and that he knows the old man exposed Shizuko, the Anna Morgan character again. So like we're getting some family elements. There's a psychologist involved here. There's some exposure. It sounds like the Anna Morgan character was kind of under wraps. Anyway, it turns out that there's Dr. Ikuma. He held a demonstration to showcase the Anna Morgan character's psychic abilities, during which a journalist denounced her as a fraud and then was psychokinetically killed by Shizuko's daughter, Sadako, which is the Samara character. Then shortly thereafter, there's a series of slanderous reports and eventually this huge unveiling at the end that it turns out that the doctor who held this exhibit was actually the father of the Samara character. And he is the one that flung her down the well to preserve his identity in fear that the news would break to the public that he was the illegitimate father of this girl. So it seems kind of messy, but I kind of love it at the same time. Even though this American remake is based on a Japanese film, that Japanese film and novel of the same title is actually based on Japanese folklore. So there's a broader story that inspired The Ring. This focuses on a woman named Okiku. Okiku was a woman who lived in a dungeon beneath a castle. This is an old, old castle, like built in the 1300s. And she was a servant to a samurai named Tessin Ayuama. This guy took a liking to her and actually fell in love with her and basically was like, I'm going to leave my wife to be with you. But Ukiku was not on board with this plan. So this samurai tried to bribe her into being with him by stealing one of these 10 really valuable gold plates in the castle. But Okiku still said no. So there are two well-known endings to the story. Either Okiku threw herself down a well to escape a life with the samurai, or he himself threw her down this well to get revenge for her saying no to him. And it is said that her vengeful ghost can still be heard screaming at night from the well, which is still there, by the way. 
And there are reports that she is regularly heard counting the gold plates in the dungeon and throwing violent fits whenever she realized, as she always did, that the tenth plate was still missing. I want to go visit it. I know. I kind of want to go visit it. So we get spurned lover, which I think we don't really get spurned lover as much in the American remake, but it sounds like that's very much present in the 1998 Ringu with like the psychiatrist and the illegitimate child thing. But then of course, the well, all that. Which brings me to information about the title. So the film's title, The Ring, can be interpreted in several ways, such as alluding to the never-ending cyclical nature of the ring curse slash virus itself. Another interpretation could be the ring of the phone call, which warns those who watch the videotape that they will die. And of course, the view of the light from the bottom of the well that creates a ring for Sadako or Samara's character to see as they were left to die in the well. I always thought of the ring as the well, but all of those other interpretations I think are kind of cool. Yeah, I never thought of the phone call, but that seems so obvious in hindsight. Yeah, right? So there are several themes throughout this film. One focuses on technology, of course. Critics have discussed the ring's preoccupations with Japanese traditions and the collision with modernity. Scholar Colette Balmain identifies, quote, in the figure of Sadako, Samara, ring unifies vengeful yurei archetype of conventional Japanese horror. Balmain argues how this traditional Japanese figure is expressed via a videotape, which, quote, embodies contemporary anxieties in that it is technology through which the repressed past reasserts itself. So although the idea of a cursed videotape may not be as scary to modern audiences, I think the idea that technology can kill you is just as scary, especially considering like we generally rely on technology now more than ever. I read something about a Simpsons episode was just released recently about a killer TikTok video. So this is a theme that I think we've seen regenerate in various ways. And even what you said earlier with when a stranger calls and that sort of thing. There are also themes about motherhood which I wasn't expecting, but makes a lot of sense. Scholar Ruth Goldberg argues that the ring expresses, quote, ambivalence about motherhood. She reads Reiku, the lead character in Ringu, aka Rachel, who, due to the new potential for women's independence, neglects her, quote, natural role as martyred homemaker in pursuit of an independent identity, subsequently neglecting her child. We can see this in Rachel's character too. Even the way her son calls her Rachel instead of mom, there's a separation between them. Goldberg identifies a doubling effect whereby the unconscious conflicts of Rachel's family are expressed via the supernatural in the other family under investigation. Yeah, I was not convinced that Rachel was fully Aiden's mother until like our son. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting kind of like looking at their mother-son relationship, which is identified as strained from the start, paired with Samara's relationship with her mother and the very climactic moment at the end where we realize her mother is the one that shoved her down the well, even though we thought it would be her father. I also have a little bit about a trope in this film known as the uncanny child, like a mysterious, unnatural, eerie child and the role that that trope can play in film. So in this article called The Uncanny Child in Transitional Cinema, the writer argues that although the uncanny child trope has been around in horror since the 1980s, being a child that contradicts romantic era ideas of children as innocent blank slates, 
There was an increase in depictions of the trope in the early 21st century, specifically in American, Spanish, and Japanese cinema. The argument is that, quote, these uncanny child films are significant not just for their self-reflexive recalibration of a long-entrenched trope of the horror genre, but because they evidence a globally resonant shift in conceptualizations of childhood at the turn of the millennium. The uncanny child's association with ghosts fulfills a specific symbolic function that approaches the core of childhood's ambivalently defined otherness. The uncanny child becomes a potent embodiment of trauma. The child's connections with spectrality empower a previously repressed traumatic experience from the past to reemerge in and disrupt the present. I thought this idea of the uncanny child was interesting in relation to the previous theme about technology being a bridge from past traumas to present life. Like people might think tech isolates them from the past, but it's actually just given like another platform to re-examine it and re-experience it, which it seems like this uncanny child trope also does. Like looking at a child makes maybe the older generations reflect on their own mistakes or their own, I don't know, lack of preparation for what that child's life will become. I think it's interesting, like a lot of times children as symbols are kind of heralded as hope for the future or what the next generation could become. But in this case, it's the complete opposite. It's like fear for the future and fear of what the next generation could become. It's foreboding rather than comforting. Yeah. And it makes me wonder too, like, we know the original Japanese version came out in 1998, but the American version came out in 2002. I'm thinking post 9-11, a really trying time in American cinema. Because of course, you've talked about too, like, what kind of horror movies were we getting in the early 2000s? And I don't know when they started work on this movie, but it makes sense that they would produce a movie that had so many undertones of fear for the future. Even the fact that it's a Japanese remake because studios obviously weren't feeling, I don't want to say that creative, but it was a prime opportunity for America to look elsewhere in terms of where is their lack of hope? And if this is a story about uncertainty about the future, it would certainly fit where we were as a nation at that point, for sure. What are your final thoughts? Like I said earlier, it's such a time capsule for 2002, where watching it now, it doesn't seem as relevant to something we would experience in this moment. But I think it led such a revolution in us being re-afraid of kids again, (laughs) (laughs) and us using technology as a medium of horror. And that's always something that when I think about The Ring, or I think about When a Stranger Calls, I think about films like White Noise, like technology as a medium of destruction. And I think that's only going to get more relevant as time goes on. I mean, you had even mentioned that previous in some of your research. I think this movie is a milestone in that, in talking about like, okay, these technologies exist and they've been around long enough where we can't pretend like they don't exist for the sake of art. So how do we incorporate them and make people like afraid of their telephones, afraid of their televisions, afraid of VHSs? And this movie obviously was so powerful for its time, for its ability to do that. Yeah, well said. I also personally really like how this feels very mysterious. And I love the slow unraveling of the story. And there's a good mix of this flashback historical element behind the story that's currently happening. And I'm such a sucker for those kinds of things. I remember, obviously, I was so scared the first time I heard this as I was cowering behind my dad. Mm -hmm. But I do also remember being really interested in the story and getting to watch it this time around and feeling much more brave. I did feel like I got to enjoy it. 
especially safe in my bubble of 2023 versus what I would have been fucking scared out of my mind about in the early 2000s. I'm glad we covered this. I'm glad I got to kind of go back and prove to myself that I can handle this. (laughs) So yeah, that's the ring. If you want to keep in touch with us or give us any kinds of requests for what you would like to hear about or correct me on my pronunciation of a lot of these Japanese (laughs) names, which I definitely did my best for, feel free to follow us on Instagram at the horrors podcast and or email us at the horrors podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.